Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back, everybody, to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're joined by Daniel J. Totora, who is discussing his recent book, Carolina in Crisis, Cherokees, Colonists, and Slaves in the American Southeast, 1756 to 1763. It's been a while since we've talked about warfare on the colonial or early American frontier, an area which is experiencing a somewhat interesting, if not dramatic, reconsideration by historians. Long viewed conventionally through the lens of inter-European colonist conflict, Warfare in colonial era North America is being re-examined by military historians employing various tools and methods borrowed from other fields and disciplines. Gender analysis, masculinity studies, race and ethnicity studies, counterinsurgency doctrine, all of these and many other methodological and analytical frameworks are being applied to questions surrounding warfare in the colonial and revolutionary era American contexts with great effect. Dan certainly fits into this revisionist category of scholarship. By focusing on the French and Indian War's Southern theater, particularly as it affects the two Carolinas and Virginia, Dan Tator crafts a unique account of an area generally o- ignored or overlooked in the face of the larger body of scholarship focused on events in Pennsylvania and the Ohio River Valley, Upper New York, and Canada. Carolina in crisis is hardly a conventional military history, however. Employing a conceptual narrative and analytical framework usually associated with borderlands theory, Dan has crafted an intricate account of conflict and how it was viewed across three different cultural boundaries, white European, Native American, and enslaved Africans. The result, I found, was a rich and rewarding addition to the historiography of early American warfare. Dan, thank you for joining us at New Books of Military History. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Guys, lead off. You know, what led you to consider this topic in the first place for a book? Well, a couple of things. When I was in graduate school, I had read Fred Anderson's Crucible of War, and there was a very brief mention of Cherokee events. And I also remembered having visited a lot of sites in the Northeast as a kid, but having never heard of anything that happened south of Pennsylvania. So I was intrigued right there. Another thing that intrigued me is at the time I was working on a project transcribing the diary of a Charleston minister in the late 1750s. And when I saw veiled references to Indian War, I wanted to know more. And so that's how my curiosity was born. You know, the central premise here, if I'm not mistaken, you know, having read your book, um, is that the contest between Anglo colonists and Southeastern Cherokees was central not only to the formation of colonial Southern political and cultural identity, but also the outcome of the French and Indian War itself. 
and then, by extension, to the formation of revolutionary ideology in the American South after 1763. Why has this taken so long for historians to articulate? That's a good question. I, I think traditionally most people have focused on the Northeast because of Canada as the chip that fell to the British. But I have a feeling that a lot of people have tended to overlook the Cherokee place in the conflict because for many of them, the French and Indian War ends in 1760 with the conquest, the British conquest of Canada. Mm-hmm. And in the Southeast, it was only the war there and the conflict and the drama was only just getting started. So then the colonial fringe, I mean, the southern colonial fringe really was a significant theater in this contest between England and France then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for the reasons you described, but also for the uh, fact that it was just such a disaster for the Cherokees and really reshaped their future direction in many ways, for the fact that it caused so much political turmoil in South Carolina, and for the fact that it really set up the revolution in many ways. You know, a significant advantage, I think, in your book over so many in the field, and you know, I, I, would, I would go so far as to include Fred Anderson's book, Crucible of War, in this. Um, you know, it's, it's the degree of agency and action that you give the Cherokee villages. You know, this is such attention and detail speaks towards a very rich archival record. Which, at the same time, you know, this strikes me as kind of an anomaly when it comes to Native American peoples, particularly in, in the 17th and 18th century. How did you manage to craft this narrative? You know, can you speak towards what type of sources you used regarding Native Americans? Sure. So it's a little difficult at times, especially when I was trying to talk so much about Cherokee motivations and reasons for going to war and to try to really get into the mindset of some of the leaders like Atakulakula and Aconistota. Mm-hmm. But I relied heavily on, obviously, European sources, um, British and French materials, also the William Henry Littleton papers at the Clements Library. There are about a thousand letters there just for 1756 to 1760. And in those materials are speeches by Cherokee Indians, letters and speeches that are often dictated through a sworn translator, a trusted translator. And I can compare those with other materials from the same time and try to get a sense of uh, what Cherokees were thinking and feeling. I also used a little bit of ethnography that was done in the 19th century primarily, but also to some extent like American and European or colonist observers and to see what they were saying about Cherokee beliefs. And uh, there's a deerskin trader named James Adair, right. somewhat, somewhat reliable, somewhat suspect. But when you kind of balance all the sources against each other, the ethnography, both from the, you know, 19th century and even the 18th century, the Cherokee speeches, um, the military correspondence that's voluminous, uh, also the James Grant papers, also those Grant papers at the Library of Congress and the David Library contain so much insight into the military campaigns uh, of that conflict. And a a lot of what's in there is the information and speeches and words of Cherokees. You know, in many ways... 
you know, turning towards the premise of the book, in many ways it's almost a stereotype. Um, but you do note the pre-war relations between the British settlers in the Carolinas and the Cherokee were generally positive. I mean, there, there were hiccups along the way. There, there, there were disturbances. But for the most part, the pre-war relationship was beneficial. Yet, by 1755, we see a state of open warfare along the frontier between the two. Yeah, the stated line here, I guess, is that colonial misconduct pushes the two sides into conflict. Is that necessarily the case here? Well, in, in the Cherokee case, I think to some extent it is, in that by the 1750s, the Cherokees were feeling the effects of an increased British and colonial presence among them. And I think what made things more significant is that once the French-British rivalry began, or once it really picked up steam, and once the you know French and Indian War began, Cherokees were thrust into the conflict because the British wanted their military support. They wanted to be sure that they had their economic assistance. And so Cherokees kind of fit into the middle of the rivalry between England and France. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, they also faced pressures of their own. And as you had alluded to, they were dealing with increased settlement, uh, people that were you know, in the backcountry encroaching on their land slowly, uh, grievances over the deerskin trade that had been established for four decades but was notoriously corrupt. So there was more than, than just the prospective role that they would play mm-hmm. either as allies of the French or allies of the English. There were definitely concerns that they had and had hoped to really shape by getting involved one way or the other. Right. Well, how much do you, or could you say that uh, cultural dissonance or, you know, the, the, the failure on either side to really understand the cultures of the communities that they were, they were dealing with plays into this too? Well, I think the biggest problem relates to the fact that when we say Cherokees, we really mean five separate settlement clusters of villagers living in communities of maybe 200 to 300 people or less, mm-hmm. each of whom is pursuing, each, each cluster is pursuing a separate policy based on their geographic location, based on their past history, based on their proximity to other tribes or other Europeans, based on a variety of factors. And so I think the fact is that Europeans, time and again, assumed that when they were speaking to Cherokees, they were getting the voice of all. But in reality, it was difficult for Cherokees to reach any kind of consensus from one settlement cluster to the next. Mm -hmm. And only under extreme crisis, as we'll see later in 1760, say, did Cherokees really come together in any meaningful way. You know, it's also for me the issue of French intrusion into the region. Um, I got to admit, I had a bit of an aha moment when you introduced the idea of New Orleans being a staging area for French influence and operations in the southern backcountry. You know, I've, I've just long overlooked Louisiana in favor of operations coming out of Canada, I guess. Um, you know, is this a sign of how much undue influence and attention, again, has been focused on the North in the French and Indian War? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the French clearly had most of their population 
in Canada, but Louisiana certainly played an important role because, you know, from New Orleans, the French controlled the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And so we see New Orleans, but also forts uh, elsewhere in the Ohio country, Illinois and Ohio country, places like Fort um, Massac, or we also see places like um, Kaskia and... Mm-hmm. Now places like that. Well, Those, I was thinking too, you know, Fort Duquesne, but that's almost sort of the obvious one. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. But the French were trying to get Cherokee military assistance and also Cherokee trade goods. And you can actually travel down the Tennessee River mm-hmm. and access a number of the French forts in the interior that way. So for Overhill Cherokees, it was not that much of a stretch, but I think it was a 21-day journey or something. It was still pretty significant to, to get to a number of those places. So, yeah, I think I think there's been a tendency to overlook what's going on in Louisiana. And maybe part of the reason for that is a lot of the letters and a lot of the materials were lost, mm-hmm. um, either, either seized by British ships or lost in transit or just never made it. So I think maybe some people have thought that the source's material is a little bit thin from the French, and that's indeed a challenge I had. But maybe part of it, but... The French were definitely trying from New Orleans to do what they can or could to get the Cherokees on their side. And they were also making overtures to the other southeastern tribes, like the Creeks, uh, with actually almost no success there because the Creeks really remained neutral. Is this an an action or policy undertaken independent from that being pursued in Canada or from France? I mean, I guess I'm looking for, is there an overall guiding hand on the French side, seeking to direct uh, continental policy, much as there was or would be on the British side uh, in the form of William Pitt. No, I don't really see any evidence of that. And it doesn't seem to me, from what I'm aware of, it doesn't seem to me that the French are communicating with each other uh-huh. very much um, from one colony to the next in New France. Right. So, no, it doesn't seem to be. It seems like really what, what I've noticed in the 1750s and 1760s as a woefully undersupplied and undermanned French Louisiana that is just simply doing the best it can to hold on mm-hmm. and trying desperately to promise Indians something better. Well, well, you have to wonder if it's seen, if it's seen too as more like a, an adjunct or an outpost for French Caribbean as well. Yeah, that's true. I don't know to what extent that's the case, but I think the French had their... They're, they they dreamed big, maybe, or but but they never really could <laughs> could muster up the the strength that they really wanted. Right. How much does intercolony relations and politics affect the dynamic tr- between South Carolina and the Cherokee? Sure. Well, South Carolina had traditionally had a trade relationship with the Cherokee Indians dating back to the 1720s, but really even further than that. And so it had naturally become the case that South Carolina was the political entity that would deal with the Cherokees before anybody else. And when the French and Indian and English began to clash in 1754, Virginia also wanted a piece of the Cherokee economic and military alliance. And so what we see happen in really a thread 
that occurs in Carolina in crisis is the extent to which Virginia and South Carolina competed for Cherokee's assistance, competed to try to solve the various problems that emerged over those years between colonists and Cherokees. And so I think there's an interesting result there that, you know, really Virginia uh, and South Carolina were in many ways rivals mm -hmm. for Cherokee affections. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that, that speaks again to the, the idea, too, that, you know, rather than being homogenous entities, all these colonies, all these actors, really, were divided amongst themselves and driven, as, as you've indicated and as I've questioned, you know, driven by a combination of shared beliefs and different needs. How does this play into decisions made in South Carolina exclusively? I mean, is there unanimity within South Carolina towards the war, or was there a divide amongst the settlers there? Okay, so in 1758, uh, Cherokees responded to calls from British authorities and to British troops posted in, I guess, South Carolina's sphere of influence and returned or went back to fight in the campaigns for Fort Duquesne. Mm -hmm. And in that conflict, they got, um, they were alienated, they returned home because the campaign went to took too, too long, and there they clashed with frontiersmen pretty much all the way home, and more than three dozen Cherokees were killed. So, Did any of the other Indians that were in British employ have that, that similar experience, or was this unique to the Cherokee? Well, it's, it's really unique to the Cherokee. By, by, for one, they were by far the most numerous. I mean, there may have been 800 or more of them, and then there's probably you know, 100 or 200 other Indians in British service smaller groups like the Catawbas and the North Carolina Tuscaroras and <clears throat> groups like that. Right. So they, those those people stayed longer. They returned home with white escorts. Oh, they, okay. they, they went a different way rather than travel through the areas that like the Cherokees traveled through the areas that had been attacked by Shawnees in the French service a few years earlier. Right. And so they encountered, you know, frontiersmen who were trying to collect the scalps, who were fresh off the heels of that misery, you know, the violence. Uh -huh. And so, and, and a lot of times the Indians, the Cherokees, didn't make things any better by seizing horses that they thought were theirs or that had been seized from them. Uh -huh. So uh, in, the, in that particular case, the Cherokees clashed, I think, more than the other groups of Indians that were returning, and they're by far the most numerous. Hmm. But, but what's also clear to me and what is, is that Cherokees really came to fight in that Fort Duquesne campaign as allies. Right. They, too, were seeking something out of it, but the, their probably biggest request was that they be allowed to come and go as they pleased. And the, the fact that, you know, Cherokee warfare, it, it, it's a lot simpler. You just sort of go. And you go when you feel like the chances are in your favor. You go when the timing is right. You go at a certain time of year. And for the English, I mean, Forbes was assembling a massive expedition of tens of thousands of troops. Right. And 
cutting a new road across Pennsylvania. I mean, Cherokees didn't really have the time for that. And so I think, you know, that the reason they left in the first place was because of, because of that. And I think that failure to understand or to allow them to, to operate as they would have liked. The Cherokees asking for the freedom to come and go as, as they saw fit as, as, a, as a group or even as individuals, how could that be considered alien by North American militia commanders? Well, the fact in similar conditions. Yeah, that's interesting, right? The fact is that the Cherokees ultimately have to answer to the British, not to the colonial militias. Right. Once they're, when they're there, but I think I think the other example of cultural dissonance with the Cherokee service in Pennsylvania has to do with the fact that they expected to be paid handsomely mm-hmm. for their services. And I think, you know, perhaps the British thought that they were giving them an opportunity or that they were sort of supposed to be fighting their enemies. But the Cherokees expected to be paid handsomely, and they were not going to travel all that distance without getting something in return. And they're pretty savvy negotiators, and they were fighting because of of what it what it did for them i think going back to the point about their impatience cherokee prestige cherokee social and political and military leadership depends on results and it depends on success in war right at that time so you know to go there and simply hang around was to lose an opportunity to really make yourself a man and many Cherokees, that was part of their motivation for leaving or for growing frustrated. And I mean, even like I, I read some of the speeches that the British troops delivered to the Cherokees, and they're not—they weren't really appealing to them in their in Cherokee terms. They were saying like, you know, let's take the land away from the French and that, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than really appealing to them in ways that would have resonated. Again, it's just fascinating for me because you wouldn't see a similar mistake made. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm comparing with, with the Northern campaign. As far as I know, you wouldn't see similar mistakes made with an Iroquois war party or uh, a Delaware war party, perhaps. Um, which, again, speaks towards different, different cultural perceptions, even amongst the British towards the different Indians, uh, or, or the lack of them, rather. It's very, very interesting, I think. George Washington recognized the value of the Cherokee Indians in these, you know, campaigns of against Fort Duquesne, especially the 1758 campaign. Washington was there, and Washington said something to the effect of, you know, by I fear that by a train of mismanagement, we may lose these valuable allies. So Washington and many of the colonials were even saying, these Indians are really important. We need to keep them in our favor. And I think they were questioning the extent to which the British authorities and Indian agents and all that were operating. They're questioning the effect of those agents. And there was also some dispute between the colonies over who has jurisdiction and who can do what. For example, uh, Pennsylvania wasn't supposed to do any diplomacy with the Cherokees. Right. But they may have had some success. But they, that, you know, Cherokees were considered part of the Southern District. And so that was to be left to, you know, the agent William <clears throat> Edmund Atkin, rather. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back then to the to inside South Carolina, which is where the question began. Um, what was the 
the the the motivations. What what was the official line in South Carolina towards working with the Cherokee? And then you know what was what actually happened? What was the the practical outcome of that? Well, when Cherokees had returned home in 1758 and began to figure out what to do after they had lost three dozen of their warriors in Virginia, primarily, Cherokees then began to attack the southern frontier, and they went to the closest settlements, and they went to wherever they could get people, and that meant that South Carolina, and to some extent North Carolina, fell victim first to the was Cherokee. This a, was, was this a morning war kind of, of campaign or something different? Exactly, yeah. It's re- the Cherokee blood revenge policy. And so here, you know, if a member of your clan or your family or your village die- dies, you have to avenge that death. It's your cultural responsibility mm-hmm. to do that. And so Cherokees then took to the frontiers. And the response in South Carolina was, we've got to do something. We've got to stop this. And South Carolina's governor, this you know, William Henry Littleton, I talk about him, young, inexperienced. Uh, he had left his brother's housekeeper pregnant and, you know, prior to becoming governor of South Carolina, and he had sort of left his brother's housekeeper pregnant and boarded a ship and, you know, took the governor position. But Littleton stepped in to try to handle and negotiate this controversy, and it seemed like at every step he miscalculated. Right. And so things got progressively worse over the course of 1759. And you know, when Cherokees came to negotiate in Charleston, Governor Littleton had already decided that he was going to send a military expedition of, of South Carolina militia to try to force some kind of peace on the Cherokees and to force them to give up the people who had killed in revenge, who had killed the, the Carolinians in revenge. And so so South Carolina's response and all that was for the governor to show force rather than common sense and for a number of politicians to actually express some fear, some concern. Uh, they didn't want to pay for it. They thought that maybe it was unwise and that they could have just pushed the, – the governor could have just set an embargo instead. These are the, probably the same kinds of controversies we have today. Yeah. You know, should you know should a military response be used or should an embargo or some, some, short, some sort of coalition be put in place, right? right? I think those tensions were swirling or those questions were swirling in the South Carolina Assembly. So Littleton's 1759 expedition – was not warmly received, and many colonists had some serious misgivings about it, and they were right. Well, you know, what's, what I also find fascinating, too, is this is taking place in the 1750s. Um, this is a period of Scottish immigration, forced migration, voluntary migration to the Carolinas after the end of the Jacobite Wars in Scotland. And, of course, these are the people who are going into the, the backcountry frontier. They're encountering the Cherokee firsthand. You know, they, you, could, you could make the argument for some of these, these Scots, they, too, were part of a tribal culture, yeah. operating under many of the same, you know, cultural norms that Cherokee had. How, how were the Scots received by the Cherokee, and how did the Cherokee view the Scots? Well, that's them? interesting, because... For a number of years, the deerskin traders that the Cherokees con- came into contact with, those were primarily people who had 
immigrated precisely as you said. I mean, they, these are primarily survivors of the Jacobite Rebellion or people that had come over as a result of the tensions they faced in Europe. So the Cherokees then had a lot in common with these people for the reasons that you described. I mean, they had a lot in common culturally, the, the fact also that some of their ceremonies and games and diversions would have been more similar in, in, in nature. And so the Cherokees had forged connections with Scots-Irish traders, at least, deerskin traders. Mm-hmm. As far as immigrants, they had, seems like they viewed them with a little more skepticism. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I look. I talk a little bit about the family of John C. Calhoun, the future politician. Mm-hmm. His family fits that category, and they had come down, and they were encroaching on Cherokee lands. Right. So, I mean, there's a difference. The Cherokees viewed deerskin traders very differently than they de- viewed settlers right. with a Scots-Irish background. Although even the deerskin traders, they often viewed with some distrust. Right. Well, I'm, I'm sure, you know, long-term exposure and mutual experience will, you know, breed all types of relations. But yeah, I mean, the appearance of the Scots is not just, you know, interlopers, but now as permanent fixtures on the frontier, which certainly raise tensions, I would think. And they would have also, yeah, and they would have also encountered German settlements. Mm. Particularly in the in Virginia and a little to a little extent in North Carolina, although the North Carolinians, some of those would have been Moravians. Right. They passed through, you know, present day Winston Salem. They they went through German communities, so they would have encountered diverse white ethnic cultures. Right. Just just traveling between, you know, their home villages in Pennsylvania, for example. Right. You know, let's turn to the conflict itself. How near run a thing was the Anglo-Cherokee War? Was South Carolina ever in danger of defeat? Well, the Cherokees definitely, you know, after the hostage crisis of 1759 to 1760, and once the Cherokees launched an offensive on the South Carolina frontier in 1760, they absolutely had the upper hand, and 1760 was the peak of Cherokee power. Was South Carolina ever in danger of defeat? I'm not sure it was, but it was certainly in danger of collapse, and in in many ways, it almost got there. The Cherokees had completely destabilized the frontier. They drove back settlement to, you know, about 100 miles. They were able to create fear and turmoil in South Carolina as well. And even before that, there was a slave revolt that very nearly happened, or a rumored planned slave revolt. So Cherokees did exert significant pressure and influence on the South Carolina frontier. They also, you know, their success also manifested itself in their defeat of an invading British army in in the summer of 1760. And, you know, with the defeat of that invading British army, the Cherokees were able to surround and ultimately capture British Fort Loudoun in the Tennessee Cherokee Overhill. So did they defeat South Carolina? No, but they absolutely had the upper hand and were, I would argue, winning the war Mm. as late as the summer of 1760. Not all the Cherokees are forward, though, right? I mean, how do these dissenters express their conscience? Well, that's great, right? Because it seemed like the Cherokee vision that prevailed was the more youthful, more militaristic vision. Right. For, for 
for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that that was the way to status and respect within the community, the Cherokee community. But how did they, how did Cherokee voices against war emerge or how did they express themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, they expressed themselves primarily through the diplomacy of Atacolacola, the little carpenter, as he was known. And the little carpenter, you know, he had been to England as a young man, and his life mission really was to seek an alliance with the British and to try to push the Cherokee forward in that direction. Cherokees also exerted influence within their communities. Uh, Women could provide information and intelligence to Mm -hmm. British or colonial soldiers. Women often negotiated peace or came to the forts bringing gifts of food and clothing and other items. So Cherokees, many of them exerted influence in a variety of ways, ranging from formal to informal. Other villages simply didn't get involved, tried to stay out of the fray altogether. Some even sent various symbols like wampum or other types of symbols of their alliance or of their um, desire for peace. And a lot of times those more moderate voices were ignored by the British and by the South Carolinians altogether. Or the South Carolinians and the British wanted that consensus to be unanimous, and it was never going to be, but they insisted upon it. Was that a convenient uh, fiction on the part of the British and the Carolinians, or did they genuinely believe that they there was that the Cherokee should speak uh, a voice of unanimity? I think it was both. I mean, I think they wanted to have that on paper, but I think they also wanted many of them after the devastating Cherokee offensive of 1760, many South Carolinians in particular wanted revenge and they wanted genocide. And even even General Jeffrey Amherst mm-hmm. wanted that as well. And so I think, I think the fact that unanimity was required in the eyes of many South Carolinians, that was both an excuse, but also a legitimate feeling, they thought. Right. Right. Well, you know, you, you raise the, the issue of the, the escalating violence in the war, you know. What can I say there? I mean, you know, it's, it's commonly held that warfare on the frontier between Native Americans and settlers was savage. Um, although not necessarily unfamiliarly savage to English, Irish, and Scots settlers, you know, who had come from a savage land themselves. Yes. Uh, was this the case in the Anglo-Cherokee War? Of, of the, well, that, the conflict being you know more savage, perhaps, or perceived that way. I wouldn't say it was more savage. It, certainly, the conflict on the Pennsylvania frontier appeared in colonial newspapers in much the same light in the 1750s and 60s. But there's there's no mistake that the way that the newspapers and the way that the letters from the frontier covered events it garnered sympathy. In coastal areas, it garnered sympathy among British authorities, and it also convinced a lot of these Scots-Irish settlers and others that the British was the British government or the South Carolina government was not doing enough to protect them, mm-hmm. and so it led many people to point fingers of blame and really perceive themselves as victims in such a way that would powerfully influence their future impressions of leadership from South Carolina and from the British. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because conventional wisdom holds that, you know, the warfare on the frontier between Native Americans and settlers was particularly savage. You know, although, as Wayne Lee points out, not necessarily unfamiliarly so for English, Irish, and Scots settlers. Was this a case of them in the Anglo-Cherokee War where the level of violence does escalate over time? And if so, you know, which side is to blame for that? Well, the level of violence definitely escalated along the Carolina frontier in 1760. What side is to blame for that? I think the Cherokees were trying to send a message. They were trying to take prisoners, recoup their population losses, and they were trying to kind of fulfill their obligations for revenge, their cultural obligations. So I'm not sure that any one side really deserved the blame for it. You might also look back at the way that Governor Littleton had mishandled things the year previous and taking those hostages. I think Cherokees really had some legitimate grievances. And I think it was an expression in seven, their offensive was really an expression of all their grievances and their cultural imperatives put together. I think another thing that really played prominently in the Cherokee violence that you saw in 1760 was the way that that hostage crisis unfolded. You know, when Governor Littleton marched his militia to the Cherokee country, he seized about two dozen Cherokee hostages, and they were to be held until Cherokees delivered the people who had, you know, quote, murdered frontiersmen over the previous two years. And those two dozen or so people were never fully delivered, and instead, the Cherokees made an effort to liberate the hostages, and things did not go well. And in the course of their unsuccessful attempt, British troops killed the surviving hostages. Mm. And I think that, in many ways, propelled the Cherokee offensive, which, as I said, was driven by the cultural imperative of revenge, driven by the need to replenish the population that had been lost, driven by desperation because, you know, they needed weapons, they needed gunpowder to hunt so that they wouldn't starve. And so from Cherokee perspective, that was really a desperate attempt to fulfill their cultural objectives and to send a message to South Carolina. Right. You know, it's, it's possible that Cherokees took it too far in that offensive of 1760. In other words, it's possible that, you know, once they had driven back an invading British army, mm-hmm. once they had invaded that, maybe they didn't need to seize Fort Loudoun. You know, maybe they didn't need to murder the, the officers of the garrison and capture many of the men, women, and children as the garrison marched back to South Carolina. Yeah, it's possible that had they not done that, there wouldn't be a future, another campaign in 1761. But I think South Carolina also deserves a bit of the blame because once the people in South Carolina, the coastal people, had absorbed the accounts of the Scots-Irish struggles and sufferings on the frontier, and once they had absorbed the sense of the hostage crisis, I'm sorry, the Cherokee captive the, the captives, the settlers that are taken captive by the Cherokees, once people in South Carolina and in British circles absorbed that, there was really no going back. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they probably could have South Carolina, but I think ego maybe wouldn't allow them to at that point. And also the realization that the Cherokees were a potent military power, just as they had suspected and for the reasons that they wanted their alliance a few years earlier. But I think that Cherokees sense of 1760 really frightened colonial and British authorities in South Carolina, Mm. so much that they wouldn't even really consider 
peace terms. Right. Virginia, you know, Virginia's William Byrd, the Colonel William Byrd III, the notorious gambler and horse racer Byrd, was you know he was seeking a peace treaty. He he wanted to come in as a neutral party at that point, or kind of a less involved party, and negotiate peace. And South Carolina and British authorities wanted no part of that. So at this point, really, there was no going back. So I think, you know, the Cherokees escalated it, but the South Carolinians were determined to have the last word. Right, right. And again, this brings into the question of, you know, how does the war affect, and you, know, you, you do describe this to some effect, how does the war affect the relationship between white South Carolinians and their African slaves? Um, you know, there's a great deal of tension on that front as well, right? Oh, absolutely, because whenever they could find an opportunity to rebel, slaves would often at least consider the possibility. Mm -hmm. And so with white people divided and distracted and sometimes gone to fight, there was a, a imbalance there that slaves often at least contemplated taking advantage of. In the most simple terms, the number of runaway slaves nearly doubled from 1759 to 1761. Slaves plotted an unsuccessful rebellion in 1759, just as tensions were really um, getting to a pretty bad point. And at other opportunities, there were spikes in poisonings of, of slave owners, uh, spikes in criminal activity in Charleston. You know, we must look at that carefully so as to not read into it too much. But there was certainly opportunity for many slaves at the exact same time that their white neighbors and slave owners were clashing with the Cherokees. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, African slaves also suffered in significant ways. They were the victims of the smallpox epidemic of 1760 that swept through Charleston and the South Carolina Low Country. Mm -hmm. They were often caught in, <clears throat> in between. You know, they're working in the fields and Cherokees struck them too because Cherokees saw them as you know, part of the plantation system. Mm -hmm. They were also, African slaves were also, many of them, expecting to find a better future through military service and even potential freedom. But as I discussed, only one slave was emancipated as a result of military service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for many African Americans, it was a period of maybe hopes of a better future, but also disillusionment. Mm. What's the turning point in the war? You know, what's the catalyst for reversing Cherokee success? To me, the catalyst for the reversing of Cherokee success, or really the peak of Cherokee success, was the fall of Fort Loudoun. Mm -hmm. And the failure to negotiate a treaty, a peace treaty, that late in 1760 was the turning point. But even more than that, the James Grant expedition of 1761 Mm -hmm. was the turning point. And that campaign, which saw maybe 2,700 British and South Carolina troops attack a weakened Cherokee nation, that, that was the turning point. There was a decisive battle in what is today Macon County, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And in that decisive battle, which I discuss in my book, the... British and South Carolina forces defeated the Cherokees and then marched on to burn and destroy 15 Cherokee towns. Mm -hmm. And really, that was the turning point there. 
more so than the destruction that they wreaked and the devastation that they caused, that campaign created so many divisions between South Carolina and the British. Mm-hmm. There were divisions between the commanding officers of the provincial and the British forces. You know, on the provincial side, Thomas Middleton, and on the uh, British side, Lieutenant Colonel James Grant, a really haughty, arrogant, pretentious officer who wouldn't seek or even incorporate any colonial advice whatsoever into his campaign. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Grant really alienated the colonists. And many colonists, because of what they had experienced the year before and because of the fall of Fort Loudoun and because of Cherokee killings of the settlers on the frontier, many South Carolinians, when, you know, when Grant arrived, wanted the British to destroy you know, most of the, to the highest extent that they could. And when that didn't happen, when Grant eventually pulled back, many radicals in the South Carolina Assembly and many observers in South Carolina thought, wow, the British aren't going far enough to avenge our losses the year before. Mm-hmm. And so that was a whole other component. You know, even beyond that, though, that Grant campaign also brought a militia like Francis Marion, mm-hmm. like... Thomas Sumter, Andrew Williamson, you know, these names that are associated with South Carolina and the Revolution, it gave them a formative experience that they probably didn't previously or wouldn't otherwise have had. And so, you know, they saw British arrogance up front, just like, you know, Fred Anderson has written in Massachusetts. And many people were alienated on the on the battlefield, you know, from the American leaders, the South Carolina leadership on down, mm-hmm. or at least shaped by it. What happens to Atacalacala at this stage after, 18, after 1761? I mean, we've, we've left with him as this marginalized voice amongst his own people, counseling restraint. There's a wave of Cherokee victory and success, which reaps in turn this horrible harvest of retaliation by the British and the Carolinians. What role does Atacalacala play towards the end of the conflict? Well, Atacolacola would be the hand-picked negotiator by the English, the hand-picked negotiator to settle peace terms in Charleston in the end of 1761 following the deadly James Grant expedition. Mm-hmm. And so Atacolacola, over the I don't know, three or four-month period at the end of the year, would shuttle back and forth from the Cherokee villages to Fort Prince George to Charleston trying to negotiate peace. How much legitimacy does he really have, though, if he's handpicked by the British to represent the Cherokee? I... Well, he didn't, he didn't have any. That's the problem. He yeah. didn't have any legitimacy. And, and even the Virginians kind of called everybody else out on that and said, hey, this, you know, how, how could he really speak for all Cherokees? He can't. And what what does a treaty really mean in the end? Now, it turns out that many Cherokees also held him responsible. And when he was returning back from negotiating the peace treaty in Charleston, when he was going home, he was attacked by frontiersmen and, and I guess, robbed, plundered. Uh, so to add insult to injury, right? So Atticola then fades in influence and becomes a more mar- uh, even a more of a marginal figure. But for the next, I would say, decade or so, Cherokees are really caught on the defensive after that. You know, some of them blamed him. Others kind of moved on the best they could. But they're so weakened in terms of manpower, in terms of having their, you know, 
their lands further encroached on, this time by Virginia and South Carolina, not just South Carolina, that for many, Atacolacola staged. And he would emerge again in the revolutionary era as the voice of peace and as their voice of trying to prevent some kind of conflict, mm-hmm. only to see his own son dragging canoe break with him. Right. So Atacolacola is, you know, he kind of disappears. Mm. Only to reemerge in the revolution as a as a controversial voice once again. Right. Well, let's let's bring it to the revolution. Bring it. Bring us closer to the the wrap up. You make the final argument that the Anglo Cherokee War really is a direct antecedent for South Carolina throwing its lot in with the Northern Revolutionaries in 1775. You know, first, how so? And then, second, was for lack of a better term, the Indian question, the real catalyst for Southern independence advocates? I think it was in the extent that it it revealed and widened tensions between crown and colony. These tensions would really continue. So the the French and Indian War, the Anglo-Cherokee War, that was the platform, that was the coming out party for Christopher Gadsden. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Gadsden, really the, the, a key figure in the Patriot movement of South Carolina, that that Anglo-Cherokee War propelled Christopher Gadsden into stardom, and that's a part of it as well. In in other ways, it left many colonists convinced that the British really hadn't done enough to protect them. And so they would always look with some skepticism. The British hadn't protected them. The taxes were too high. They're, for, you know, they, they had paid a price and they had sacrificed. And it seemed that as the British responded in the 1760s and 1770s, they had forgotten that or they had overlooked that. So I think that that is a big part of it. Now, to what extent was the Indian question a catalyst for the revolution? By the revolution, by 1775, the Cherokees were less important trade partners, mm-hmm. but they were still occupying lands that South Carolinians in particular were coveting. Right. So in this sense, by 1775, the Indian question was a catalyst for the revolution because now Cherokees stood in the way. They were no longer allies to be courted or trading partners as they were before. Right. As you know, in part as indigo, indigo grew more important, or as farms and got more established on the frontier. But the Cherokees then stood in the way of South Carolinian advancement and progress as they saw thought. Mm. And so I think to that, in that way, the Indian question was a catalyst for the war. And also the fact that South Carolina's leadership in 1775 had come of age fighting Indians or criticizing British Indian policy. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of a counterfactual. Just mentioned about how from a South Carolinian perspective they were abandoned, they were ignored by the British after um, 1761. And that, that was a very caustic reassessment of the relationship with the mother country. Yet at the same time, we see the British not ignoring Massachusetts um, during the 1760s and 1770s. Counterfactual is, had the British, or what would the effect have been had the British quartered troops in South Carolina? To the same extent, would that have been greeted with with more acceptance by the colonists, or maybe you know not prompted 
uh, South Carolina joining the Northern Revolutionaries or not? I mean, again, it's a counterfactual. I wonder if South Carolina was so economically viable and so prosperous that the British hesitated to make an example out of them or to really push matters in the 1760s after the Anglo-Cherokee War. Mm-hmm. Because because what we see happen, one of the things that we see happen right after the Anglo-Cherokee War is a controversy in South Carolina over the election, the re-election of Assemblyman Christopher Gadsden. And ultimately, a new South Carolina governor tries to do everything he can to thwart Gadsden to thwart his election, but also to kind of silence him as as a result. And the South Carolina government shut down as a result. And ultimately, the royal governor was recalled to Britain and actually left with another man's wife, another South Carolinian's wife. But in any case, I think the British maybe saw the economic importance that South Carolina had or thought that maybe they had more support in general, right. then, you know, they also had a little different dynamic, the British did, had a little different dynamic in South Carolina, and that there wasn't quite the lower class white population that they could, that, you know, like Boston had. Right, right. So it's true that South Carolinians did, did protest and, you know, were incensed by what had happened in the French and Indian or Anglo-Cherokee War, but South Carolina had a little different dynamic that probably meant that their resistance was a little bit slower in taking shape. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that the British had really pulled back in 1763 with that Gadsden election controversy. And, you know, the Stamp Act, even the Stamp Act protests in South Carolina were a little bit more tame. Right. And, you know, we, we know what happened in Boston with Governor Hutchinson's house, but in South Carolina, one of the most dramatic episodes was when uh, protesters went to the stamp collector's house and insulted his mother or mother-in-law. Hmm. You know, not nearly the same George Saxby's house, so not nearly the same violent response. No, certainly not. <laughs> you know, insulting someone's mother-in-law versus burning someone's pl- plundering and burning someone's house down. <laughs> Completely, the governor's house. <laughs> it's certainly a Python-esque kind of. Uh, uh, well, you know, then the British never recalled Hutchinson, right? They recall, you know, they recalled South Carolina Governor Boone, right? After a year or two, and after failing in that Gadsden dispute, but they never recalled Hutchinson yeah. right away like that. So. Well, even during wartime, I mean, you know, during the height of the American Revolution, you know, Lord Cornwallis believes that there's a sizable. Um, Tory component, and there was a sizable Tory population in the backcountry of um, of South Carolina, enough to, to pin a strategy upon. That that raises an important question, like you know, why were there so many people in South Carolina, or at least why did the British think that they had so many allies even after the French and Indian War? Mm-hmm. Well, part of that is because of the settlers that had arrived after that. Because with the Cherokee threat removed and with Cherokees pushed back even further, Mm -hmm. white settlement increased with a lot of new arrivals. And these new arrivals were, in many cases, Huguenot and British and others. So I think to some extent that explains why the British, British thought they might have had more support when the revolution rolled around. But also the fact that many of these backcountry frontiers people blamed the South Carolina authorities 
for right. denying for denying them representation at the you know for you know not really helping them. They they didn't look to the British necessarily, but they blamed the South Carolina elites, the coastal elites. So it's it more that lowland highland dispute. Yeah. All over it. Yes. Yes. Right. Definitely. Right. Listen, as we bring us to a close, I'm going to hit you with our, our customary wrap-up questions, um, neither related to this project. Um, first of all, what are you reading now that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I'm reading two books at the moment, John Forbes' biography um, by John Oliphant and David Preston's new book on Braddock's defeat. And I would recommend both of those to anyone who's interested in the French and Indian War. They're both, I think, pretty rich. But I've learned a lot from reading them, and I think they'll they'll both create a lot of conversation. There's another book that I've been meaning to get, um, a book about um, this Doug Cubison's book about St. Clair mm-hmm. in the French and Indian War, and so that's another one on my list that I would recommend about the quarter ma- the British quartermaster Sir John St. Clair. Great. Okay. Well, and the second question then. Um, what next project are you conceptualizing or working on now? Well, I've been working on Native Patriots in the Revolutionary War. And in particular, I'm looking at the Indians of the northern borderland, the Wabanaki Indians, to see how they shaped and were shaped by the Revolutionary War on the northern frontier. Great. I'll look forward to reading that one, too. Well, Dan, thank you again for joining us to talk about your book. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Best of luck going forward. Thanks. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. I'm signing off for new books in military history. Thank you all for listening.